you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Jesus had been crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And after his ascension, ten days later, the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And the result was an explosion in the number of those who put their faith in him. 3,000 came to faith on the day of Pentecost. That's in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 41. And then we read at the, end, or at the beginning of chapter 4, 5,000 men came to faith. And it continued to grow. Something that's important for us to recognize here is that at this point, it was a Jewish church. That is, all the believers were, in fact, Jewish. They're in Jerusalem. It is a Jewish congregation. This will change when we get to chapter 9 in Acts, when Peter goes to meet with Cornelius. But up to this point, it is an exclusively Jewish thing. Although the apostles were, in fact, arrested and had trouble with religious authorities, it was the martyrdom of one of the seven deacons, a man named Stephen, that really changed things. In chapter 8, verse 1, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then several verses later, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And then in chapter 11, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. It is interesting that the sharing of the gospel with Gentiles begins in Antioch, That's where people were first called Christians in Antioch. Jerusalem was the location of the first church, the mother church, if you wish. And James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, was the head of the church there, even though he himself was not an apostle. If you look at the first verse of James, it starts out, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He simply, this is how he identifies himself. There are at least four James that we know of uh, in the Gospels. Uh, James, the brother of John, they were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Uh, He was the first apostle to be martyred. He was beheaded. Uh, There's the son of Alphaeus, who may have, in fact, been the brother of Matthew. So we had two pairs of brothers uh, in the 12 disciples. There's the father of Judas, even though it's not Judas Iscariot. Um, but of another. And then we have this James, James who is the Lord's brother. Um, This James was a respected figure in the early church, especially among the Jewish Christians. We are told by tradition that in fact he was stoned to death by the Pharisees for refusing to renounce his commitment to Jesus. He died in 62 AD. Um, But he was a major figure in the Jerusalem church, and we know this from various passages. In Galatians chapter 1, I went up to Jerusalem, this is Paul writing, to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James the Lord's brother. So he's a prominent figure. In 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul writes about the resurrection, um, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. In Acts chapter 12, Peter has been arrested. He is in chains. He is surrounded by four guards. But an angel comes in the middle of the night, releases the chains. The guards don't wake up, and Peter is taken out of prison. He goes to the house of his nephew, John Mark. And when they finally let him in, uh, 
they thought he was a ghost. They're, they're praying for his release, and when he shows up, they, they can't believe it. He tells them, tell James and the brothers about this. So time and time again, James is the one who is mentioned as, as prominent. This is something you need to tell James. When they had the first Jerusalem council, they're trying to figure out, what do we do about all these Gentile believers? You know, how does this fit in to the plan of the Lord Jesus? And after everybody had spoken, James speaks last. And this is what he says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them, and then he says the things that they should tell him. And finally, when Paul is arrested, he goes to Jerusalem, and uh, Zib has been reading it to us. He is arrested, um, but when he goes up, he goes and he meets with James. And James gives him advice, this is what you should do. Uh, so that you won't get in trouble. He gets in trouble anyway, but James is the prominent figure. As the head of the church in Jerusalem, James now writes this letter, which is really more of a sermon than it is a letter. It's a sermon in the form of a letter to the members who have, who have left because of persecution. They've scattered all over the Mediterranean basin. The question may come up, is it important to know who wrote the book of James? I think it is important, but we need to recognize that it is the writing that is inspired and not the writer. Okay? In Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes to the Colossians, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, that's a nearby town, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Apparently, Paul had written to the Laodiceans as well. That's not in the New Testament. So not everything that Paul wrote was inspired. It is the writing that is inspired, not the writer. Okay? We tend to use inspiration in a very romantic sense. Oh, I was inspired by, you know, to do such and such. What we find in Scripture is that the writing is God-breathed. It is God who has this written. Okay? So the author is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't identify himself as such. Rather, he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the book of Jude is also written by a half-brother of Jesus, by Jude. And he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Okay, not a brother of Jesus. So why don't they say, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus? Um, seems like that would be worth mentioning. But the ascension of Jesus altered all human relations. His brothers would naturally refrain from saying, oh, we are the half-brothers of Jesus. He is now the glorified Jesus who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And by the way, one could argue that to be the servant of Jesus Christ is actually much better than being his actual half-brother. If you're going to play a certain card to say that I am the servant of Jesus Christ is pretty significant. What about the date of this book? When was it written? And is it important? I think it is. James was killed in 62. We know that. So it had to be before that. So when was it written? I would argue it's probably the first book of the New Testament that is written. It's the earliest book of the New Testament. It's written before 1 Thessalonians, which was Paul's first letter. It's written before the Jerusalem Council, which is 48 or 49 AD. It's written before there was any controversy between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Okay? It is written to Jewish believers dealing specifically with the practice of their faith. By the way, we also know that 46, 45, 45, 46 AD was a time of great economic trouble. Um, there was a famine in Judea. Uh, people in Jerusalem were having a hard time. And it's at this point that James reaches out to those who have left town. So who does he write this to? If you look at verse number one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. We just finished going through 
parts of Genesis and we saw the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, after the death of Solomon, the 10 tribes to the north seceded. They became known as Israel and the two tribes, Benjamin and Ju Judah, the royal tribes, they know, are known as Judah. The 10 tribes are taken into captivity long before the two tribes to the south are. So one could argue there aren't 12 tribes, the 10, the 10 lost tribes, but it is a way of speaking of Israel, the children of God, those chosen by God. The expression, the 12 tribes of Israel, became a popular way of describing the regathering and the spiritually united people of God. Because remember, at this point, all the believers are Jewish. And so they see themselves as God's chosen people. They are chosen by God and saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, James is writing to Jews, and let's be very clear about that. They are scattered among the nations, the diaspora. They have been, they've been scattered in part because of the persecution, uh, but for other reasons as well. And it may be that, in fact, life is not going so well for them. Or when we get to chapter 5, maybe life is going well for them and they have forgotten some basic things. We'll come to that later. Those who are left in Jerusalem, just a side note, are probably the poor. Those who had money to get out of town, I think they left. Okay? They left. But those who can't, the widows, the elderly, those who are poor, they can't. And so one of the things that Paul does as he goes among the Gentiles is like, hey, you've got brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and they're having a hard time. You need to give to them. Almost all the passages in, in Paul's writings about giving, it's not about giving to church. It's about helping the poor in Jerusalem. That's where James is. But now he is writing to those who are no longer in Jerusalem. They are scattered across the region. Is the question of the original audience important? I would say absolutely. James is included, if you look at commentaries, it's put in the category of general epistles. That is, it seems to be addressed to the church at large. It's, you know, it's unlike Romans. Paul's writing to the people in Rome. You know, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, to the people in Corinth. And James doesn't do that. It's to the 12 tribes scattered. And so it's seen as a general epistle. Um, and I would disagree. I don't think that the book of James is written to the church at large. It is addressed to Jewish believers who had been in Jerusalem and are now scattered due to persecution. This is what James wanted to say to them if they'd still been in town. This, these are the words he would want to say to them. The book of James has, in fact, a controversial history. It is not rejected as much as it is neglected. Uh, in the time of the Reformation, doubts about the book of James came up once again. Martin Luther is famous for his uh, rather derogatory remarks about the book of James. Um, Luther said, James is preaching a different kind of gospel than Paul is, that he's talking about works and Paul is talking about grace. Um, he called it an epistle of straw. Well, all due respect to Martin Luther, he was wrong. Um, along with the book of Jude, Hebrews and Revelation, James is put at the end of the New Testament for Luther. He doesn't get rid of it. He simply puts it at the end of his translation of the Bible into German. I find it interesting, and particularly in preparing for this, that along with the epistle to the Hebrews and the book of Revelation, um, some of these are the last to be accepted by the church into the canon, into what is what we call the New Testament. Side note, the apostles had already decided what the 27 books of the New Testament were before 70 AD. 
Okay, the apostles have already done that. For some reason, the church just took centuries to catch on to what had happened. But the books that come in last are the books that were written to Jews. The book of James, the epistle to the Hebrews, and I would say the book of Revelation. You cannot understand the book of Revelation if you do not understand the Old Testament. If you were listening as Gia read to us today from Daniel 7, many of the images from there, we find similar things in the book of Revelation. But as these are Jewish books, they are written to the Jews, Gentiles tend to not understand them. They tend to mangle them and really come up with bizarre understandings. I've come to the conclusion in studying the book of James that to fail to recognize the original audience as Jewish believers is to miss some really significant truths. James is writing, first of all, to people who know the Old Testament. They are familiar with the Old Testament. And I would say, of the books they were most familiar with, besides the Torah, the first five books, is the book of Psalms, which they would sing uh, every, Sunday, or every Sabbath. As a result, we find that James seemingly quotes the Old Testament far less than Paul does. I think in, in the book of Romans, Paul quotes the Old Testament 57 times, something like that. But Paul's writing to Jewish and Gentile believers, Gentiles who still are not that familiar with the Old Testament. But in a sense, all James has to do is say a word or a phrase, and oh, that's from Psalm such and such. They came to understand that. So, for example, the issue of wisdom. Uh, let me back up. An outline that we will follow in the book of James is that chapter 1 is the introduction, extended introduction. Chapter 5 is extended conclusion. 2, 3, and 4 are the three points he puts in at the end of chapter 1. In chapter 1, though, he deals with the issue of wisdom. If you look at verse number 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. To understand what James is writing in this book, one thing is required and that is wisdom particularly as he begins the book, you know, count it all joy when you fall into all kinds of trials. That sounds really harsh. One needs wisdom in order to understand that. In the Sermon on the Mount, the fool is contrasted with the wise man. Therefore, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Actions are tied to wisdom. We may tend to think of wisdom as you know, smart, intelligent. Uh, James, in the tradition of the Old Testament, sees wisdom as seen in action. In the parables, uh, at the end of his speaking of the destruction of the temple, uh, it's not a parable as such, but Jesus tells his listeners, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Are you a wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. So it is someone who does what he's supposed to do in anticipation of the return of the master. Doesn't know when he's coming back, but he does what he's supposed to. At the very end of his public teaching ministry, Jesus tells the parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So wisdom and those who are wise is presented as something that involves hearing and putting into practice what, in fact, you have heard. I would argue that's what the whole book of James is about. It's about doing what you're supposed to do. 
even with the master not being around. It's about being prepared in the face of a delayed event. James knows the teachings of Jesus, and I will argue in a minute, so did his readers. But I see him in many ways more in the tradition of the Old Testament. Wisdom in the Old Testament, we have three wisdom books, uh, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. All three are different, but they call us to pursue wisdom. We are summoned to think hard as well as humbly, to keep our eyes open, to use our conscience as well as common sense, and not to shrink from the difficult questions of life. By the way, side note, the, one, the fundamental premise or principle underlying all the wisdom books is that God created the world. He is the creator, and therefore he is to be obeyed. If there is a wisdom book in the New Testament, it is the book of James. He fits within that tradition. So wisdom, very Old Testament, we find it in James. The fact that life is fleeting, the transitory nature of life. In chapter 4, verse 14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears a little while and then vanishes. We find this throughout the Psalms. Psalm 39, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Selah. That's verse 5. And then verse 11. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Selah. And as best we can tell, Selah is a word that says, stop and think about what you just read or what you just sang. And both times, man is but a breath. Think about that. Psalm 144, 4, man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. And then the language is very much that of the Old Testament. You know, in chapter 1, verse 8, James seemingly creates a word. It sort of created an uproar. Oh, he made up this word. Someone who is, in fact, double-minded. You know that verse, verse number eight. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And then in chapter four, verse eight, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Like, wow. In fact, he, he creates this word, de-psychos, that is literally, or psychos, not psychos, two souls or two minds. Wow. James came up with this wonderful concept. Uh, actually, no. This is from the book of Psalms. Psalm 119. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. And then in Psalm 12. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with, a flattering, lip, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. To those who know the Old Testament, to those who sing the Psalms every Sabbath they know exactly what James is talking about. They're familiar with this. It resonates with them. Sadly, James could not write the same letter to us today because many Christians do not know the Old Testament. They don't know the Psalms. It is a problem. Some Christians today act as though Matthew is the first book of the Bible and totally neglect the Old Testament. So James is writing to those who know the Old Testament. He's also writing to those who know the teachings of the apostles and of the Lord Jesus himself. It is, in fact, possible that there were people to whom he's writing who had heard Jesus themselves. They had listened to him while he was preaching during his earthly ministry. But again, many Christians today are not familiar with the Gospels or the teachings of Jesus. And as such, they will miss the connections between what James says and what Jesus said. Take one example. The opening statement, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Well, this seemingly has a connection with the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, that is, be filled with joy, and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. One commentator has noted, it is clear to any casual reader of James that his writing is very close to the teaching of Jesus. In particular, James is very close to the teaching of Jesus recorded in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. That's found in Luke chapter 8. The problem that this raises is that James never directly cites a word of Jesus. He never says, Jesus said, or the Lord said. But more important are his allusions to Jesus. Some 35 times in this epistle, or once every three verses, the early Christian, and I would say here, the Jewish Christians, readers would immediately recognize that James was reminding them of the sayings of Jesus. They, along with the Old Testament, are James' authority. So he's writing to people who know the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms. They know the teachings of Jesus. They know the teachings of the apostles. But he writes to them as a pastor. He is their pastor. It's pastoral in its tone. There are exhortations. This is interesting. There are 108 verses in the book of James. There are 50 imperatives, 50 commands in these. That's the one every two verses. James is a pastor. And he's not writing to inform them. At least three times he'll say, you know, or as you know. So he's not like, it's not as though, oh, you know, you guys left town and since then I've come in some new information. And so I want to share with you something new that I've learned. He tells them, listen, you guys know. You know this stuff. The problem is they're not acting based on their knowledge. He did not write to inform, but to command, to urge them, to encourage them. Well, in today's society and culture, the idea of the pastor commanding is, yeah, we say, well, the pastor should exhort people. He should encourage them. The word Command never comes into our mind. Uh, yes, it's, I like it when the pastor encourages me, uh, usually to continue in the path that I have chosen to take. Um, the idea that the pastor can tell people what they ought to do is generally rejected. But James is telling his readers what to do. But he's not doing it as a dictator, this harsh taskmaster. He's doing so with tender pastoral concern. At least 15 times in this book, he refers to them as my brothers, my dear brothers. Well, if you're the pastor and we're just the people in the pews, why would you say my brothers? Because they are his brothers. They are believers, fellow believers in the Lord Jesus. One author has noted As soon as we read through the book of James, we say to ourselves, this man was a preacher before he was a writer. And we should have a sense that as he writes this sermon in the form of a letter, he has deep concern for his flock, for those who have moved away. Otherwise, when we read right off the bat, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, we're like, this is some kind of sadist. I mean... He wants them to rejoice in their trials. But you'll notice that he refers to them as my brothers. They are his brothers in Christ. This is not a cold, uncaring man who has not been touched by the harsh realities of life. He is in Jerusalem, after all, where there is persecution going on. After greeting the readers, greetings or joy to you, James begins his letter, his sermon. Consider it pure joy, verse 2, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The letter opens with two characteristics. First of all, affection, pastoral affection, my brothers. Um, He's their pastor, but he's also a brother in Christ. He's not forgotten this. 
he hopes that they've not forgotten it as well. He is a leader, but he is a servant, and they are brothers together. And secondly, there is pastoral admonition, the imperative, consider it pure joy. Uh, the King James and the ESV have all joy. Consider it all joy when you fall into trials, when you face trials of many kinds. This is perhaps the most difficult part of the section, if not the whole book, because we can agree with the second part, verse number three, you know, because you know, you know that the working of the trial of your faith uh, develops perseverance. Okay, yeah, we get that. But to start off, you know, greetings, joy, consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Something that is key to us understanding this is that joy is the noun form of the verb rejoice. There are two words in English, joy and rejoice, but we have at least a dozen in Hebrew and half a dozen in Greek. Joy, by the way, is not the same thing as happiness. James will mention being happy in the last chapter. is any among you, anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy at them sing songs of praise? His readers are familiar with the Old Testament. So do they know anything about joy from the Old Testament? Absolutely. Rejoicing in the Old Testament is tied, at least in the first five books, to feasting to the feast that God had ordained. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 10, you should be able to remember that reference, 10, 10, they're called times of rejoicing. You have the Passover feast, you have the feast of Pentecost and Tabernacles. These are times of rejoicing, times of joy. Later on, another feast will be brought in, that's Purim, to celebrate the deliverance of the Jews. Esther, remember, with King Ahasuerus. Um, These are times of rejoicing. There's a passage about the high priest sounding the trumpet. Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. There's to be celebration. There's to be joy. Passover remembers when Israel is brought out by God in a miraculous way in the Exodus. They put blood on the doorpost. When the angel of death saw it, he passed over them. But Egypt lost all their firstborn. And Israel was delivered. And Passover is a remembrance. It is celebrating that event. After four centuries of slavery, the Israelites were free. Pentecost weeks and tabernacles uh, are festival feasts. I'm sorry, they are harvest. They deal with agriculture. They are times when, in fact, you are to celebrate that you've had a good harvest. Uh, Deuteronomy 16. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. And rejoice in the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. You, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and follow carefully these decrees. The Feast of Tabernacles, toward the end, they're supposed to build these, these shelters to sort of remember what was going on 40 years in the wilderness. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your, in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the works of your hands. And your joy 
will be complete. So when James begins this letter, consider it pure joy, all joy. For the Jewish readers, this connects to what they know of the Old Testament. Who appointed these feasts? Who decided that these would be feasts? God did. God is the one who appointed these feasts. So what's, what's the big deal? Why, why are these important? Well, three things come to mind. First of all, rejoicing has to do with remembering. You remember what God has done in the past, and you give thanks. Secondly, rejoicing reminds you that God, in fact, will do something in the future. He has done, done something in the past. It gives you hope for the future. We find this in the prophets, that they keep speaking about that which is to come. There's darkness at the present time, but there will be a time of light and a time of joy. Isaiah 51, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will, return, they will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Everlasting joy. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Time and time again, this is mentioned. Let me read an extended passage. It's from Isaiah 65. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. For the past troubles will be forgotten, hidden from your eyes. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be mentioned, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. If you're paying attention, much of this language we hear in Revelation. New heavens and a new earth. So, there's rejoicing for what God has done. There's rejoicing and hope of what God will do, but there's rejoicing in the present. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So the feast were intended for God's people to remember, to look ahead, but also in the present moment, which might not be particularly pleasant, they could still find joy and rejoice in God. By the way, rejoicing or joy isn't simply for God's people. I mean, we have God setting aside particular times of the year for feast, for his people, for Israel, to remember what he has done, what he will do, and what he is doing at the present moment. I find it fascinating that in Acts chapter 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas are traveling through Asia Minor, uh, and they come to be believed as two of the Greek gods that Barnabas is seen as Zeus and Paul is seen as Hermes. He's the messenger. He does the talking. You know, so Barnabas is the strong, silent type, if you wish, and Paul is the one who speaks. And they tear their clothes and say, we are not gods. Please stop this. And he tries to explain to them the truth of the true God. And this is what he says in part. He, the true God, has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. This is something that God does not simply for his people, but for all his, those made in his image. I would submit to you, by the way, that we and the rest of creation can only have joy because it's part of God's nature. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works.
joy originates in the Trinity. It is the nature of the triune God. In Luke chapter 10, at that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So God the Son is filled with joy by God the Holy Spirit and then praise to God the Father. What about the New Testament? I said that James' readers knew the Old Testament, but some of them had heard the apostles' teaching. Some of them may have heard Jesus' teaching himself. Well, joy is at the center of the gospel. Remember when the angel appeared to the shepherds? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. The gospel is the good news of great joy. In fact, it is the fulfillment of what the prophets had said was going to happen. The coming of the Messiah meant the end of exile, and there would be deliverance. It's no wonder that the gospel message is filled with joy. We find it in the parables. In chapter 15, there are three parables of lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And Jesus tells his listeners, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 10, in the same way I tell you there, will, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, by the way, do you think that God is sitting on the throne and is like, okay, you, you guys go ahead and rejoice. That's, yeah, I'm not going to participate. This is the very nature of God and it is reflected in his creatures. By the way, Luke ends his gospel far differently than what we find in Matthew. Matthew, we have the Great Commission. Uh, in Mark, we have people who are afraid. Uh, John says, listen, there's just so many things. The, book cannot, uh, the world cannot contain the books. He writes, so when he had left them, I'm sorry, led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Three things stand out to me about joy in the New Testament. First of all, Unlike the Old Testament, which has all these feasts and festivals, we, we don't have feasts or festivals in the New Testament as such. We do have a meal, the Lord's Supper, in which we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember the past of what he has done and what he will do in the future. But he is with us at the present moment. Our worship is to be marked by remembering as well as hope. And secondly, there is the past, present, future paradigm. Our present circumstances may make joy seem almost impossible. It's like, Damon, are you serious? You want me to be joyful during a very, very difficult time in my life? Um, well, this is one moment. We have God in the past. We have God in the future. He is with us right now. Our joy is anchored in the past and the future. And here in the present, we are to be joyful, as difficult as that may sound. There's something else. Joy in the New Testament, as in the Old Testament, is to be shared. You may remember I read from Deuteronomy about the Feast of Tabernacles and of Weeks. Very plainly, the Israelites are told they are to include their sons, their daughters, male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless and widows. This is something that they are to do together. And I would say that in the New Testament, we find in the church that we are to share our joy. Paul wrote a great deal about joy. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Yeah, I think when a lot of Christians today read this, they think of, I'm to have joy in my heart. This is something 
I'm supposed to do by myself. I'm to have joy. No, joy is to be shared. Several verses later, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. As a congregation, as God's people, we are to share in our joys and in our sorrows. Just like the Israelites were in their festivals, we as God's people are in our everyday lives to share our joys. In Philippians, he says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's a prisoner. Okay? He's in chains. He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing with the Philippians and he wants them to rejoice with him as well. The reality is any given Sunday when we come together you may not feel particularly joyful. Different ones may not feel like I'm here but it's hard. Well, those who in fact filled with joy or to share their joy with those who in fact may be lacking. By the way, the book of Philippians is one of the prison epistles as it's known. That is, Paul wrote this epistle, this letter to the Philippians, those in Philippi, while he is a prisoner. So what is the key word in Philippians? We studied this a number of years ago. Is it suffering? No. Persecution? No. Prisoner? Seems like a good one. No. The key word in the book of Philippians is joy. The noun form, joy. The verb form, rejoice. At least 16 times in the book of Philippians, we find either joy or rejoice. It is in Philippians that Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. By the way, that's what Paul said, okay? I'm not repeating for emphasis. That's what Paul wrote. We find that Paul tells his readers, and indirectly, uh, well, he tells them directly, but also by his example, indirectly, that in fact, joy can be found in any and every situation. This is how James opens his letter, his sermon. Those who have moved away. I said earlier, the outline I have is, and by the way, if you outline anything, it's artificial because you don't know exactly what the reader had in mind. But he has an introduction, chapter one. It's a long introduction. But at the end, he mentions three points, and that's what he'll deal with in chapters two, three, and four. And then in chapter five, he has an extended conclusion. Those to whom James is writing have left the familiar and now they live in the unfamiliar. They've left home, they've left Jerusalem, and now they live among Gentiles, among pagans. They have a sense of dislocation. It's almost like they are exiles. And a sense of connection, of continuity with what they had back in Jerusalem. No doubt they would say, boy, remember what it was like Back in Jerusalem, we would meet in people's houses and have meals together and talk about the words of the Lord Jesus and what we had heard the apostles teach. And now it's gone. James writes to them to fix this, to correct it. As their pastor, he is writing to them and he wants them to get back on the path. One last thing. I think if you were to ask the average Christian, but perhaps even the average unbeliever, okay, which comes first? Is it what we believe that shapes how we behave? Or could it be that how we behave shapes what we believe? I think most people would say, well, what you believe shapes how you behave then why don't we act the way we should? We say we believe certain things, we don't always act that way. I would say 
when that happens, what hap- our behavior begins to shape our beliefs, and our beliefs begin to change because of our behavior. James is writing to people who have the right belief. They know the Old Testament. They know the Psalms. They know the Sermon on the Mount. They know the teachings of the apostles. Yeah, but they're not living like it. Their belief has not shaped their behavior. And so what we find in the book of James is he's, this is not theoretical. This isn't theology per se. This is, this is what you guys are supposed to do. This is very practical. They believe the right things. They're just not doing the right things. And so James, their pastor, I don't know. Has he heard reports? I don't know. Or is it simply human nature that we say we believe certain things and we just don't act consistently? This is what we find in the book of James. And the Lord willing, this will be a beneficial study for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, indeed, you have done wonderful things for us in the past, and we give thanks. Even in remembering, we have joy. And when we think of what is to come, when we will be in your presence for eternity, we have joy. But present circumstances don't always point us that way. And it may be that we just get too busy. We just have so many things to do that we forget, in fact, that we are to have joy. We are to rejoice what you have done, what you are doing, what you will do. I thank you for this sermon that James wrote almost 2,000 years ago, but it still speaks to us today if we would but listen. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive your truth as we go through this book. I thank you for bringing us together on this Sunday, this Lord's Day. And I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. We pray in a special way for Tony as he travels to Utah that you would give him safe travels Watch over him as he's there. May each of us have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in this coming week. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.